You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there, back here in the uh, Gangland Wire studio in the spring of 2021. The COVID is about over. I've got both of my shots, and as some of you know, I even had a, not too bad a case, but I had a case of it over the winter. So I figure I've got triple immunity. I got two shots and the antibodies from having COVID. So thank God I got through that. Gave it to my poor wife too. That's a bummer. She was not happy with me. I think I got it at a golf course. Uh, that's At least that's what I'm saying. But we have here today a real deal made guy who is now out of the life and, and into a whole nother life. And we're going to hear about his life and his change into this new life. I think it's important to see people... Uh, redeem themselves from their past lives. If it was a little bit, shall we say, a little half a bubble off a plum, as we say out in Missouri, a little bit off kilter from the general, although it, it is a hugely interesting story, and it's hugely interesting life, this life in the La Cosa Nostra Mafia. What I find interesting about it, I think, is that there's this whole subculture of that life with people who were bright, could have been, you know, CEOs of corporations, a lot of them, and been middle managers, good middle managers, but they chose that other life for a variety of different reasons. And guys have families at home, and they go to a little league baseball game, and they go to church and have this whole two separate lives. I've often said it's working the mob in Kansas City as a cop. I had two different lives. I was at home in the suburbs during the evening and sometimes during the day and then work the evenings, I come over to the city and I live this life as almost like a pseudo gangster, kind of trying to fit in with mob guys, hang out in the bars, drinking a lot. And that double life, I just find it fascinating. So it's Bobby Luisi. Welcome, Bobby. Oh, thank you for having me on the show, Gary. Now, you were known as Boston Bob at one time, correct? Yeah, the Philly guys call me that. Yeah, you started out with the Boston family. You've got several recent projects going in in your current life, uh, which you've changed lives. You probably have changed lives more than once, but I know you've changed crime families for sure, which is interesting in itself. And you're in a whole other family. A Christian family maybe is a better way to put that, but... Tell the uh, listeners, and I call my listeners wiretappers, tell the wiretappers, tell my guys about what you got going now. I know you got a YouTube channel. Yeah, I, I got a podcast going right now, The Bobby Luisi Show, and it's starting to pick up. We're doing really well with it. I also have a Christian book online on Amazon, God's Plan is Revealed, and, and I published that in 2013 under Alonzo Esposito, and I just republished it again under Robert Luisi. So that's going pretty good right now. And we're doing a few other projects we're trying to get done now. At this time right now, we're writing a book about the war in the 90s and my life story. So we're hoping that's going to be out by the end of the summer. Cool. Uh, That's going to be an interesting book. Yeah, yeah, that will. You'll be getting those Hollywood people after you wanted to option that for a screenplay more than likely. (laughs) I'm hoping. (laughs) Yeah, really. That's what we all hope they but yeah. Brad Pitt, I've been waiting for Brad Pitt to call me for a long time, about five years I've been doing this. He ain't called me yet. <laughs> he will. Hear that, Brad? <laughs> Maybe someday. Yeah, see, he's a Missouri boy. So if he just started listening to my podcast, he'd say, you know, this guy's got something. I need to, like, help promote him a little bit. But <laughs> he hasn't done it yet. <laughs> never know. <laughs> really. So, Bobby, as you know, we've talked a little bit that I was in law enforcement and I – I worked the mob in Kansas City. We had a, our own La Cosa Nostra family, the Savella family. And 
Nick yeah. Savella had been the boss since, God, since before 57. He was at the Appalachian meeting in 1957 with a real old-timer who brought him there to introduce him. So we were kind of subservient to Chicago, and, and you were on the other side during those days, especially when I was working this in the 70s and early 80s, uh, all the way up to really to the start of the 90s. So I find it fascinating talking with you guys, but first tell me a little bit about your time with the Boston family. How did you first get involved with that? Well, I grew up in the North End in East Boston, and the North End is a little Italy in Boston. That was headquarters for the mob. Every other corner you went on, there was made guys, couples, bosses, whatever. And it was always around us and influenced us. At the age of 11, I went to work for the gangsters. They had a vending machine company, Rome Vending. And I was 11 years old. They used to go after school and go out with the guys and load the cigarette machines, the pinball machines, clean out the money and Saturdays, we used to go out and do all the dime machines. And I think it was 11, 12 years old. It was making $50 a week. Wow. Tips <laughs> and everything. You know, it was great. And you don't even realize, I mean, I'm only a kid. I mean, the Angelo family really owned the company. I never was around them. Jerry was the boss in Boston. Right. Under Raymond Patriarca. But I was around all the rest of the wise guys. So my father in an early, you know, I guess maybe his early 20s hooked up with these people. My father was always involved with them. And I grew up around them. Grew up around couples and May guys. And they were great guys. And I think maybe the age of 16, 17, the other side of my family, we're all carpenters. Yeah. And yeah. And I really enjoyed that. So I kind of just sway away from that. And I wanted to go into the construction business. And I did that for a while, up to my 30s. But I still had a little involvement on the street, not much. Yeah. So now I was building homes on Martha's Vineyard. Very popular place. Everybody knows about uh, Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. In the late 80s, the market crashed. And I lost my houses on the van. I was specking houses down there, building mm-hmm. for other people. Yeah. Developing. And I lost everything. I lost my condo and house in Boston. And I lost everything from Boston to the vineyard. So I came back with two kids and no money. That's how I hit the streets. Early 1990, probably maybe. 1990, I got back on the street. So you had these contacts from people you grew up with and people that would oh, yeah. trust you, knew you were a stand-up guy, and yeah. so you knew where to go to mm-hmm. try to, to recoup because a line in the song, he owed debts that no honest job could pay off or something along those lines, Springsteen song. Mm-hmm. So you had debts that maybe no honest work could repay. So you found another way to start working on that. Interesting. Like what would be one of the first pieces of action you got involved with where you, you have to make money for that gets trickled on up, kicked on up to somebody like Angelo or on up to Patriarca. How did that work for you? Well, when I came home in 90, I seen a lot of young guys in the neighborhood. They're dressing nice, they're driving Cadillacs, and they're not working. So I'm fishing around now and seeing what's going on, what these kids are doing, and they're all selling drugs. So my first action was to grab a few of them and put them under my wing. The Luisi family was a big family in the North End. My father was involved in the life, and it was pretty easy for me to go out there. So I started to learn the business with the drugs. From there, I opened up a card club, bookmaking office, started doing a little loan shock. And eventually everything just started building up for me. In the beginning, I wasn't kicking up anything to anybody. I was around those people. I was embraced by them and they weren't looking for anything from me. They just wanted us to get reestablished and start building. So they left that door open for me, gave me a green light. And that's what I started to do. During that time, a war broke out in the early 90s in Boston. A lot of people got killed up there. I was right in the middle of it. There was four or five different factions who were all fighting against each other for control. And by the mid-90s, things were out of whack for the Patriarca family. <laughs> I read about that. That was when 
Raymond Jr. kind of like people were set thinking he was weak and Vincent the Animal, I uh, can't remember his last name now, but he Ferrara. Thought, Ferrara, he thought he was weak. And that's when the Bureau jumped in on him and were able to actually put a microphone into a making ceremony, which was a huge, huge embarrassment. Yeah, I'm in in one of the neighbors that I lived in. Yeah. Um, that was huge. It was. Really? So you'd been making money so much for the supposed proscription, if you will, mob guys earning money from selling narcotics. That's the, you know, the long-held myth that I realize is not exactly true, but you weren't exactly, you weren't a made guy. So if, no. if you fell, you weren't going to be a big embarrassment for him and say, oh yeah, I know that guy, but I heard he was dealing drugs. I, you know, he, he, they could, you know, wash their hands of it. Did any made guys want to put money in with you on loads of drugs so they can make money back from it discreetly? Oh, or did you? Honest, we became made guys. Okay. We all did. Yeah. So out of that, you're making money. So you're making a lot of money out of all that. And they see that. And in a way, that's how, that's the way you earn your way in. Would that be correct? No, I didn't earn my way in that way. Like I said, the war came. Oh, okay. The faction that I was part of for the Salemi faction. At that time, Frankie Salemi was the boss. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember. The assassination on his life was failed. They killed Wilbur Grasso, and who was supposed to be Raymond Jr.'s underboss. Vinnie Ferrara didn't like that too much, and Joe Russo, he got clipped. And then they tried to clip Frankie Salemi. Frankie survived, and in the midst of all that, they picked up Vinnie Ferrara and Joe Russo and all the guys in Boston. You know, so it was pretty wide open there. So Frankie stepped in as boss. And unfortunately, I was in his faction, but all my friends were too. So I shouldn't say it like that. But that's when we all started coming up together. And then really in 93, the war really broke out after uh, Richard Devlin was shot and killed. And things were getting wild at that time. Yeah, really. I tell you what, I know they've learned in Kansas City that when bodies start hitting the streets, the FBI and local and state law enforcement gear up and pull out some stops that they and assign more people. I've seen it here in Kansas City. We had some bodies start dropping in the 70s, and it ended up with really taking out the heads of the major families in the Midwest because we learned about the skimming from Las Vegas because we're investigating these local murders that they had right. done those murders. They wouldn't have been there. They wouldn't have investigated. So I know you felt the brunt of that. So did you notice that increased effort in law enforcement? How did that affect you guys? Well, did it not affect you at all? I would like to think I had some effect, although I was doing riding around taking down your license numbers and seeing where you were going and who your girlfriends were. But <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of they've seen that. But no, listen, we knew they were all on us. Bodies were dropping. Things were crazy there at the time. But you can't worry about the law at that point. You got to be careful. We always try to stay a few steps ahead of you guys. We did the best we could. But eventually, at one point, you get us all. Yeah. It's another. Yeah, it no, is. But you can't let that affect everyday business. You guys just make us be a little more careful. <laughs> That's all it is, my friend. That doesn't mean we're not selling drugs. That don't mean we're not extorting. Yeah. That don't mean we're not loan sharking. That don't mean there's not going to be another murder. Yeah. So it's like a game. Yeah, it is. And another thing that hurt you was DEA is the only one that really investigated narcotics until the late 80s, and then the FBI took it over. And, buddy, they <laughs> they got a smooth-running organization, and they got more sources than you can shake a stick at. DEA, they were all good guys, but they didn't have the wherewithal the Bureau did. So when you're in the drug business and the FBI goes after you, it's bad news. Well, you know, the FBI works with state police. Yeah. DEA works with state police. At one point, Mark Soko, he ran the, he was a DEA agent working with crime enforcement with the state police in Massachusetts. And he came knocking on my door and wanted to talk to me. Yeah. 
What happened was the FBI was ready to get to pick me up. They were coming to get me. He found out about it. He wanted to try to recruit me. Yeah, I've done that. Been there. Guys all like, tell him, come on. <laughs> it was a funny story. But they all tried. They all were coming after me. Yeah. State police, local police, FBI, DEA. I had them all on my back. Yeah, I can imagine. I went around like I didn't have a care in the world, Gary. <laughs> well, you got to. You got to put on the front, man. <laughs> Don't let them see you sweat. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't. So now out of that, remind, did you catch a case out of that? You end up going down to Philly, which is a story in itself. Was that part of the reason you went down to Philly? Well, I went to Philly because the crew that I was with in Boston, there was a lot of problems up there. And I had an altercation with a couple in the Patriarca family. And at that point, I knew I wasn't going to get made in the family. So I figured, let me move on. I had a friend out of Rhode Island, Jerry Cormat, the Frenchman, they called him. Very popular guy. Serious guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was a serious dude. He was yeah. a bad dude. He ran the uh, Patriarcha faction in the prison up there, I read. Oh, yeah. He was a bad guy, Jerry. Good guy, though. I love Jerry. Yeah. So he sent a guy up from New York to talk to me. And I was negotiating with the Gambinos. And that kind of fell apart because there was already a family in Boston the Patriarca family. Right. Pete knows he didn't want to get involved with it. And I ended up going to Philadelphia. Best thing, I ended up meeting Joey and Georgie and great guys down there. Yeah. And they embraced me. They took me in. Yeah, that's Joey Merlino. And is it- Georgie Brugazzi. Brugazzi, yeah. I couldn't think of his name. I had an inquiry once that said uh, Brugazzi had some connection to the Kansas City family, a guy named Willie Comisano he was in the joint with. Did you ever hear anything like that? Yeah, he may have. Georgie, okay. he had a lot of friends. I know at one point he was coming to Chicago to do something. Uh, so he did it. And this one were on the street. So Georgie had connections. He had so a lot of people. He was one of those guys. I always find it interesting. Some guys like that, they get around to different cities and make these personal relationships and connections. Other guys don't. They hardly get out of their neighborhood. Let me tell you, Georgie was a good businessman, very sharp. Uh-huh. We hit it off pretty well together, me and Georgie. He was a liaison between me and uh, Philadelphia. Between Boston and Philly. Okay. Good guy. Tell me about what happened down in Philadelphia then. How did that work out? And I want to talk a little bit about this Ron Prevedate, who is an interesting guy. Now, was he actually a cop or was he just a paid informant? No, he was a cop. Okay. He was a bad cop. Yeah. Oh, okay. So tell me about what you started doing with them and how you got involved. And then he ended up turning you in or testifying against you, I believe. Well, you know, I started going down to Philly in the mid-90s. And got proposed in their family, true Georgie, Brigazi. And I ended up getting made down there. At some point, I met Ron Previty. Now, Ron Previty was from that old faction that Joey was at war with. But Joey knew Ronnie, took him under his wing again, him and Ralph Natale. Meanwhile, Ronnie was working with the feds and the state police the whole time. Yeah. Wow. You know, they induced Ronnie with a lot of money. They gave a lot. Of, I think he got over a million dollars by the time all the cases were done. Dang. You could buy him for a dollar, this kid. Yeah, I, you know? I, I tell you what, I was lucky to get 50 bucks to give to somebody. <laughs> yeah. so when Ronnie came in the picture, I wasn't crazy about him. I really didn't like Ronnie. Not an impressive guy at all. My whole crew in Boston, they really didn't care for him either. But Joey made him a couple. So at that level, he was able to speak with me. Mm-hmm. And Ronnie was coming back and forth. And he had a friend up there, supposedly, who was an FBI agent. And they got me sitting with him. Now, did you bring your drug business? You already had this, all these connections made were sources of supply and distribution network, apparently, up in Boston. Now, did you bring some of that with you and just transplant that down to Philly? Or 
No, not at all, because Giorgio Bergesi didn't want any drugs down there. Okay. Whatever the other guys were doing, I didn't know. I didn't get involved with that down there. Georgie didn't want me to sell drugs. Ah, okay. You no, know, once I made my crew and everything, and uh, they took care of all of that, Georgie was really hot on that. He didn't want any drugs. At one time, Previty approached Georgie. I said, listen, my state police friends, they're talking about Bobby. He's a big drug dealer up there and this and that. And that concerned Georgie. So Georgie came to me and, and spoke to me about it. But then, no, I didn't bring it down there. Ronnie Previty ended up being the connection, but he was coming up to Boston with this Irish Mike McGowan and ended up on tape. Uh, so I- Irish Mike McGowan from Boston was undercover FBI agent. Is that- undercover FBI agent, yeah. Wow. And what did they want? How did they pull you in? What did they want to set you up with? What part of your greed or your uh, desire to make money did they play on to get you pulled in? Well, it was a greed because I didn't want to deal with him. The first meeting I had when I met him, we were in a restaurant up in Boston. Ronnie was there, and Ronnie was telling me that some guys were bothering Mike. Yeah. I said, well, Mike, tell them you're with the Luisi family, and whoever is, they'll back up. If you have any more problems, I gave him one of my cousin's numbers to call, and we'll take care of him. And that's how the meeting started. Yeah. Then they started introducing different things, yeah, jewelry, hot stuff. Swag, all this. <laughs> yeah. I didn't move. I wasn't in that business. <laughs> I ended up bringing everything back to him. You realize the scam, don't you? And what did Joe Pistone use it? We used every law enforcement used it. Gets you heart started in like, I'm going to give you all this really good deals on this hot stuff. And so pretty soon you're like dealing with me like I'm a professional criminal that has this access to this jewelry or maybe they'll go out and buy a whole trailer load of something and sell it to you for practically nothing or sell it for practically nothing. And then you're like, oh, this guy's the real thing and I can make money off of him. Oh, man, they're slick. Well, I'll never forget that. The first time I was approached with the drugs from Ronnie, we were at a party in Center City in Philadelphia. And he approached me with these drugs. And I said, listen, I don't do that, Ronnie. I don't know what you're talking about. I kind of shoot him away. At that time, Joey already made him a capo, but every time Ronnie was around me, he used to break his balls. I didn't like him. Yeah. I knew he was a full of shit guy. So then Joey started to push it, unfortunately. Not thing, Joey was the boss. Yeah. You don't go against the boss, right or wrong. But I was still reluctant. I just kept pushing the guy off. I didn't want nothing to do with the drugs with these guys. That day, you're down in Philadelphia and New Jersey. New York's right there. I know the drugs that are going through New York with the Italians. What are you coming up to me for in Boston? It was suspect right away. Right at that party, I had a conversation with Sean Viteri, who's a May guy in the family, one of my guys. We said, all right, let's be careful with him. Once the drug started in the conversation, I really didn't want nothing to do with it. So I kept pushing them off. I didn't need Irish Mike or Ronnie to make money with. I didn't need that source. Right. So how were you making money at that time? What were you, you have going? Drugs, long shopping. A little extortion, bookmaking. We were doing it all. Okay, extortion and bookmaking, uh, loan sharking. I got you. Okay. So you had to get an envelope, shall we say, to Skinny Joe Merlino periodically? Well, there was a deal set up because I feel when I was setting up my family, I was a couple in Joey's family, and I felt that a little tribute going down would be nice. Yeah. I used to send an envelope. Yeah, I did that. And I think every couple in every family should do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, like Why Nixon am I a couple in your family? <laughs> yeah. Boss. Hey, well, well. yeah. Here in Kansas City, Nick Savella, 
sent extra money to Joey Ayupa in Chicago just because they were like equals in some manner, but Chicago was always above us. So that yeah. hierarchy I find interesting as hell that he was on his own accord. He would send like twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars periodically yeah. from his end of the skim back up to Joey Ayupa because he was a bigger boss. The hierarchy is so fascinating. So go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, Chicago itself ran most of the Midwest. I mean, yeah. everybody pretty much it was answering to Chicago, and Chicago was with the New York guys. At any time, he could have called Joey and had an army down there. This is why we do things. It's all about respect and honor to yeah. the people that you're with and the people that are above you. Yeah. But that's how the mafia works. You know, a lot of guys, you send money here, you send money over there, but we all got to eat. <laughs> yeah. I want my boss to eat. I want my friends to eat. If you're making money, what's the difference? Yeah. So kind of going back to as this case starts going down, Joey Molino wants you to get into this. So he knows if you get well, he gets a little bit well. He did not end up catching a case off of that. No. Both Joey and I got entrapped with this drug okay. case. We both got entrapped. They entrapped both of us. Joey won money. Actually, my entrapment was true Joey because he gave the order. But I got to say this about Joey. I never had a discussion with Joey about drugs. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? No. You know how we work things. Yes. You don't really say it directly. You take care of that thing. That's all <laughs> yes. Joey had to say. I know. I know the thing, but you yeah. don't. Know yeah, I know. I've listened to the phone don't know the thing. <laughs> yeah. Joey never once told me to deal drugs with Ronnie. Yeah. Never Interesting. <laughs> So it really all came down to Prevody's testimony and whether he was believable or not, it sounds like. Well, listen, my case, they love Joey in Philadelphia. Listen, he's a celebrity down there. Yeah, I noticed that. Even today, he's a celebrity. A guy walking around. I mean, Joey's just the guy. (laughs) Yeah. God bless him. I still love him. But me up there, once the jury came in, I was guilty before it started. Yeah. I'm in newspaper articles. They know I'm a boss up the 90s was a bad time up in Boston. And I don't think anybody believed my story, although I wasn't trapped. And I went to trial on that. I went to trial twice on that, and I lost twice. Hmm. There was nothing I could do up there. Really? You know, if you think about the history of the FBI agents up there in Boston is on entrapping people or helping people get wrongly convicted to protect a source is pretty sordid at best, an embarrassment for law enforcement. It's terrible what the Boston FBI office did yeah, and what the prosecutors did up there. But I'm going to tell you, they were great with me. So that time, they were great with me when I went in. So, so you did some time. How much time did you get out of that? And how much On time the did first you trial, I got 235 months. I lost. I won an appeal. I was the first person in Boston... You can look it up, the government versus Robert Luisi, to overturn a drug case. And that's because the judge knew if he let in a certain, what do you call it? Item of evidence or testimony or? If he let that in, if he used that case and let it in, the jury was going to let me go home. Uh, And he wouldn't allow it. When I went up to the appellate court, my lawyer said they were actually upset with the prosecutor and the judge. And they overturned it. But they sent me back to trial. I went back to trial again, and I lost again. Hmm. But if you remember, I think it was 2005 or six. they changed the guidelines, and I slipped through the cracks, and they had to take 47 months off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember that. And then I went down. I lost again, but I went down to 15-8. Yeah, cool. So actual time, I did almost 14 years. Whew, boy. I just thought of the word for that. 
exculpatory evidence. That's evidence that might tend to prove you innocent. That's always a deal. If a prosecutor hides exculpatory evidence, he can end up getting himself in big trouble. And all law enforcement can end up getting in big trouble for hiding that kind of evidence. And, right. and it happens all the time. I swear. I remember well, instances but we used to It was bad in Boston, but they changed a lot of things up there. Yeah. Interesting. So you're doing a lot of time. Now, this was federal time. Were you up in Lewisburg or where were you? Federal time. I was in, let me see. I was in Farrington. I was in MCC, New York, when 9-11 happened. Oh, really? That was a terrible time. We were locked down for over a month there. Sandstorm, Minnesota. I was in Arizona, where Sammy LeBeau was. Yeah. Then from there, I went to uh, Allenwood, Pennsylvania to finish my bid. Interesting. So in the, were there, like in the movies, were there mafia wings, so to speak? I know you guys kind of ganged up a little bit because I have a friend here in Kansas City that spent time. He was in Sandstone and Springfield, the medical facility and, and a yeah. couple other places. And, mm-hmm. and actually, he was sent a message to take care of a, a guy and make sure that he got his commissary right and did everything right. So did you have that same experience? Well, when I was in there and the units I was in were smaller units. I mean, it was really good. I was with a few Chicago guys. I was with Nicky Calabrese. Uh, I know you heard about him. His nephew, oh, yeah. He's scary, du- scary dude. <laughs> yeah. Nicky, I was with Nicky for seven. Great guy. Yeah. Oh, really? Really, really good man. I was with Bonanno guys, Colombo guys. We're all yeah. together. You know? So you kind of knew each other and took care of each other. just like it is, gets depicted in the movies. Yeah. Yeah. It was basically like that. We all stood together. So at some point in your life, you had a, what I like to call a redemption experience, a moment of uh, light that hits you somehow. Tell the listeners and tell us how that worked in your life. Well, it was a little more than that. Okay. A bolt of lightning? A bolt of lightning came out? No, no. <laughs> okay. What do they call it? An epiphany? Epiphany. There you go. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Awakening, whatever. But actually, I had a spiritual experience with a demonic spirit. That lasted about eight hours. And I wow. see a lot of things and a lot of sins and people we had killed. And yeah, it was something. I mean, you know, that's going to be coming out in another book that I'm writing right now. But it was really wild. And that night that that happened, I'm a diehard gangster. But right after that experience, I was seeking Christ while I was still a boss on the street. Were you in the penitentiary? Were in a jail cell when that happened? Or were you out by then? Oh, I was out. This happened. Uh, 15 months before I got arrested. Okay. Oh, before you actually went in. It started before. Yeah. This happened when, uh, yeah. Oh. And then after that experience, there was like a haunting that went on all the way into prison. Yeah. You know, I had a seat because I wanted to know why did this happen to me? And we're on the street. We think we're great guys. Yeah. Bobby's a good guy. Yeah. I wasn't a good guy. I was self-righteous. I was evil. I didn't care for nobody. (laughs) really for myself. Yeah. You know, I love the guys that were around me and my wife and kids like we all do and our parents, but I could care less for anybody else. I could care less for murder. If you're not with me or against me, I didn't even care. Yeah. You get a callous over your heart in that life. And no matter what we think of ourselves, other people don't feel that way about us. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying, Gary? You know. I know what you're, you're saying, dude. You guys like us all your life. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> many policemen are somewhat like yeah. that. You just harden yourself to everything. I had an experience myself that I was like drinking a lot, and I went on a trip by myself and skiing, and I had, well, turned on the TV, and there was just a TV preacher just around the mill, and he said some stuff, and I just started crying, man. It really slowly but surely changed my life. I talked to another guy named Ernie DeVino, 
who was in a big dormitory kind of a prison or a jail, and he saw us crucifix. And he said there was something about it. He just couldn't quit thinking about it. And he couldn't quit thinking about it. And he couldn't. And he, and he even went through the next several months. He refused to testify against a guy named Tony Splatro out in Las Vegas, who was kind of a big deal. And he could yeah. have bought his way out. This guy could have walked if he had testified against Tony, but he wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But he eventually, by the time he did some time, when he came out, his life was changed. It took a while. So it's your story is not, you know, that happens. That shit happens. Oh, it happens a lot. And more than you know, because being the person that I used to be and the position I was in, a lot of guys opened up to me about their experiences and what happened. It wasn't like Paul on the road to Damascus and I yeah. got knocked down by Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I was in the room with Satan. It's really something to what happened to me, the experience that happened with me. And let me tell you, the only thing that kept me strong in that room that night was the name of Jesus. And I seen the power that he had over this thing, just mentioning his name. Yeah. You learn there is a God and there is a devil. We don't realize that when we're on the street, even though we think we're Christians and we're Catholics and we go yeah. to church and all that bullshit, all right? You're working on the street. You're an advocate of Satan. Yeah. Nobody realizes that. I realized that afterwards. You're in his playground. You're doing his work. He wants you to sell drugs. He wants you to murder. Yeah. He wants you to extort. He wants you to terrorize people. This is what he likes. Not what God likes. That's what the, really the mob has. They prey on people's addictions and weaknesses, and they supply that stuff that then exacerbates especially addictions, whether it be drugs or for money and gambling. And then they own you, and you become their tool. It's no, it's not quite as glamorous as romantic as people like to make it, is it? No, no. Listen, growing up in the name, like I told you, I grew up with all wise guys around me. They're driving Cadillacs and town yeah. cars. They're in expensive suits. Half the people in the neighborhood wish they had the money for the shoes they were wearing. I was a 16-year-old kid. I was wearing $150 shoes when I was hanging around with them. Yeah. There were people in the neighborhood that make that in a week. Listen, it's a glamorous lifestyle, but nobody knows what's behind it. There's a veil up. I really got deep into it, and I became a boss, and it was a 24-7 job. (laughs) No, you didn't know when the feds were coming. You didn't know if a guy was going to get whacked. You didn't know who wanted to whack you. Always on your toes. Oh, yeah. No fun. I know. Same car drives by your house twice. You know it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, You got gun in hand. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's a suspect. Everybody. You can't just walk out of your house and go get in your car without thinking, what about when I start this thing? What's going to happen? You know, it was every check day it out. like that. It was yeah. every day. I mean, there were times, all of us, my crew, we didn't. You go out every day. You don't know if you're either going to get arrested or you're even going to come home that night. Yeah. Tough life, man. Yeah. That would be tough. Yeah. But you get numb to it. You get used to it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Bobby, uh, we're coming up here about 44 minutes. I think we probably have got a pretty good show going here. I really appreciate you coming on. I wish you all the luck in the world. Let's go back over one last time what you got out there. You've got a book. You got your YouTube channel. I guess if you would go to YouTube, you just search for Bobby Luisi, L-U-I-S-I, and you'd find it. And you've got a bunch of good interviews on there. Oh, the Bobby Luisi show. Yep. Right. Yep. And then your book is available on Amazon. What was the name of it? God's Plan Revealed. The book itself is a summary of the theology class that I used to teach. Okay. And it breaks down the Bible from the book of Genesis all the way to Revelations. So it's a good read. Yeah. Somebody that's really uh, wanted to become maybe a theologian or uh, really learning the Bible. To me, it's interesting from a historical standpoint that this whole philosophy 
stems from these events that happened that has basically taken over the world. I find it interesting, even from an intellectual standpoint. Mm-hmm. Now, you've got another book coming out. Are you working on another book? I'm working on a book right now with Emily Sweeney. And Emily was an investigative reporter for the Boston. Oh, yeah. I've done a couple of shows with her. I really like Emily. She knows her stuff. Nice gal. Yeah, she's already done a mob book. Yeah. And uh, I know she's going to do a great job with this book. And I like the perspective of it because it's going to be part of my story. And Mm -hmm. believe me, you know, she has in-depth information on all those guys up here. She does. Yeah, She's going to write a great book. So I'm excited about that. I think it's going to be a good seller. So we're working on that project right now. I actually talked with her last night. So I'm hoping by the end of the summer. I don't want to rush her. But <laughs> okay. I'm anxious to read this book. All right. Next time you talk to her, tell her I said hi. I'll get her back on when she gets that book out. We'll help promote that book or get both of you. Yeah, that would be good to come up to my studio. Tell her we'll do both of you and, and help get some people to learn about that book. So great, Bobby. I really appreciate you being on here and good luck with your future endeavors. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Bye. All right. God bless. Bye. Well, folks, that ends another Gangland Wire episode. I just want to thank you all for listening and for all your nice Apple podcasts and other podcast app reviews and the nice comments you make on my YouTube page and on my Facebook and questions you ask on my Facebook pages. Now, as most of you all know, I upload my Zoom interviews on YouTube so you can see what my guests look like in real life. And also put most of those on my Gangland Wire podcast Facebook group. And, and in regards to those Facebook groups, I've got two. One is the Facebook page, Gangland Wire Facebook page, and the other was my podcast group. And the group is smaller, and I monitor that pretty closely. So get on that. I want to thank Ken Couture and several others for keeping fresh content on my Facebook page. If you want more mob information you can shake a stick at, just go to the Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook group. And remember, if you support the podcast with donations, you'll get an invite to my monthly live Zoom calls where we'll share stories, answer questions, and sometimes have guest speakers. And in general, we have a good time. A lot of guys will be sitting back in their den with a cigar and, and a drink, and, and uh, we just have a really good time on those monthly Zoom calls. The main method of making a donation is on my website donate page. You can use a credit card or use PayPal, but you can also buy me a cup of coffee or shot in the beer with your Venmo app or make any donation that you want to make. If you do it on Venmo, make sure you get me an email if you want to be on my Zoom call. I asked for donations to help do my next documentary, and a lot of you guys really responded big time. And I've been able to pay people, and it's going to have a little higher production values than what I've had before. I'm getting really close to completing it. It's about Kansas City organized crime and politics. I have a title, finally. It's Boat Fraud Here Again, Politics and the Mob. And don't forget about my previous documentaries, Gangland Wire, Skimming from Las Vegas, and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War. Both of those can be purchased or rented on Amazon. Now, finally, the last thing I'm selling, and I'll leave y'all alone, is my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. Now, if you're going to get that book, you're going to find that I used a lot of the actual wiretap transcripts from the skimming investigation. And if you get the Kindle version, I got the audios from those wiretaps. And you just click on a link and you'll go to that other website and it will allow you to listen to all those wiretaps. I think that's kind of unusual. So go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. And if you don't have a Kindle, Amazon has free Kindle software for your tablet or your phone. 
Now I'm going to let you guys go, but first I want to say that Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans out with PTSD. You can get help with their hotline, 800-873-8255, and then push one. Or you can go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. Thanks a lot for listening, and I must credit all of our music to our good friend and Frank Costello expert, Casey McBride from Portland, Oregon. Check out Casey's Frank Costello Facebook page, Uncle Frank's Place. Thanks, Casey.